Welcome. I'm your host, Roger Tucker. I'm a native of Newark, New Jersey, and each week I'll be interviewing artists, historians, authors, and other cultural thought leaders to discuss the cultural impact and influence that Newark has had and continues to have on their lives and work. Hey, everybody. I'm Ara Tucker, and I'm super excited to be guest hosting this edition of What's Newark Got to Do With It? Today, we are joined by my dad, Roger C. Tucker III, who many of you know as the regular host of this podcast. So today, we're going to cover all sorts of things, ranging from Nork to art to parenting to everything in between. So, Dad, you ready to get started? Absolutely. All right. So there are the places that surround us, and then there are the environments that we choose to cultivate on our own. And I'm wondering about how growing up in Newark has influenced how you've sort of curated your homes. You know, how do you think about interior spaces when you're surrounded by such enrichment outside? Like, what do you choose to do in your homes? Do you have things hanging up on the walls? Do you have books? Like, and how did Newark have anything to do with that? Well, again, the one of the big advantages of growing up in a, in a city the size of Newark and with the history that Newark has had over, it's one of the oldest cities in the country. So um, the, 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 for me, the uh, library, the museum, even the department stores were sort of um, the ways that spaces were uh, engaged by people. So you're in the library, it's full of books. You're in the museum, art is hung. They're, part of the Newark Museum is the Ballantine uh, Mansion, which is uh, the mansion of one of the founders of um, one of the large brewers in Newark, Ballantine um, Ale. And you get to walk through, as part of an exhibition, the house of this very wealthy um, uh, industrialist. And so for me, the introduction of how people live, uh, what's important to them, um, was sort of uh, exemplified by these public spaces that I was around. And then I was fortunate enough to have uh, a great aunt. She wasn't a great aunt, meaning in that she was older. I had this great, this fantastic aunt who lived in the next suburb over East Orange. And she had these really cool friends um, next door, uh, Pat and and Rick. And um, Pat and Rick were a young couple. We would have I referred to them as hippies. They uh, were they were educators. They were the last um, or one of the few remaining couples who hadn't um, left uh, East Orange or the, the Newark area. And I remember going to their apartment and they had um, one room, which would have been a bedroom for anyone else. And the walls were lined with books and the books were all uh, arranged in the Dewey Decimal System because Patty was a librarian and they were paperback books, but they were they were um, displayed very proudly as if they were, you know, first editions. Uh, the furniture that they had, they didn't have a traditional living room or dining room. They had sort of what was a David Susskind, who was an old time TV um, commentator, interviewer. It was a round table surrounded by 
six chairs that sort of rotated. That was their living room. And their dining room was a, was a, uh, a picnic table that Patty's father had built for her. So very untraditional um, sort of setting. I remember going home to my parents and saying, you know, Patty and Rick, none of their furniture matches. They don't have matching sofas and their appliances in their kitchen don't match. So I got to see the traditional, which was the homes typically of my parents and my friends, uh, you know, very set ideas about a dining room, a set idea about a living room, a set idea about, you know, all of the rooms. And I, I got to see very early that there are opportunities for you to, um, uh, to find out what is your sort of style. So the homes that we've had, the homes that you've been, you know, that you grew up in that we've had, you know, books were important, uh, comfortable furniture, um, not too much furniture, um, not most probably the most traditional. I remember the first uh, uh, light that we bought uh, for the house on Stone Drive, the dining room light. It was a light fixture that I bought in New York City. I think it was at Conrad's, which doesn't exist anymore. And it had a a bulb that you could only get in maybe one store within, you know, five towns. So this idea of uh, non-traditional uh, spaces or interiors that reflected my, or, you know, the family's likes um, became sort of the, uh, the way that I've, uh, that I've always lived. Mm-hmm. I want to actually talk about that intersection of the, um, the formal and the informal, and we'll get to education in a second, because I'm really interested in talking to you about, you know, your education, particularly at Arts High. But I remember wandering into the Neue Gallery, you know, museum in New York and seeing the Wassily chair by Breuer (laughs) saying to my friend, Doug, hey, that's the chair I grew up in, you know, seeing my dad reading the New York Times every Sunday. So, you know, how did you think about the place of art and museums and industrial design. Like, I remember we had a lot of adventures together at tons of museums. Like, was that a conscious decision that you made as a parent or was that you as an art appreciator wanting to just, you know, go and, and I was along for the ride? Well, it, it was, it's, 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 it's amazing. I, again, was surrounded by a phenomenal um, family and friends and um, I remember my eighth grade graduation present, my, the same incredible aunt who introduced me to her neighbors, my aunt Elaine, said to me, Roger, for your graduation present, I can give you money or I can give you an experience. Which would you like? And I said, well, what do you mean by an experience? She says, well, you know, something, we do something together uh, that would be very special uh, or I can give you money. And I said, well, let's, uh, I'm curious, let's do the, the, the experience. And what she did, as this is, was my eighth grade um, gift. We had a dinner at the um, Four Seasons restaurant, which is one of the premier restaurants in the country, in New York, the country and the world. It was world known in this modernist building by the same architect who designed those Wassily chairs that you mentioned. Um, And it was again, like entering 
almost a cathedral. There were stairs that you entered, you know, that you climbed up at the at the reception area. There was a huge um, uh, tapestry that was, I think, the uh, tapestry from the design from a Picasso. We were led into a room, again, this modernist room with an indoor pool and um, tables, um, very, very systematically arranged. And uh, I remember getting the menu and I said to her, I've never seen a menu. The menu was literally about 18 inches tall and about 14 inches wide. And it was pressed, it was pressed paper that you could look through. It was like this incredible cloth. And I asked my aunt if she, if we could have one and she bought one for me. Unfortunately, I still don't have it. So from there, we went to see a play. We went down to the village and we saw You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. And I was one, you know, there were, there were young people there. Um, but, you know, here I was, we took a, a bus ride over to New York City. We ate at one of the most exclusive restaurants in the world. And then we went to see a play. And that's what my Aunt Elaine thought was a great time. Our, you know, my parents would take us to the beach. Uh, so different, different adults in, you know, in, in my life were interested in so many different things that around culture, around the idea of an experience that isn't always the most expensive experience, but again, this idea of experience. So the, you know, <laughs> I remember, you know, my dates in high school and then in college we're all around trips to New York. What are we going to see? We're going to see um, a play. We're going to see a movie. We're going to go to a, a restaurant that I could actually afford. And so it wasn't a much of a stretch to say, well, I have a kid now, or I'm going to have kids. I have kids. I have this kid. What, what are we going to do? And I thought, well, I love this. I can't imagine you know, my, 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 my daughter, you not um, enjoying this. And so fortunately you did. So it was really not, do I pivot and become a parent and do things that parents are expected to do? I said to myself, Hey, I'm going to continue doing the things that bring joy and um, happiness to me. And that's the experience of looking at art, of being in a great city of having something wonderful to eat. I remember taking uh, you and Alexis to the Metropolitan Museum. And we had, um, when you were older, but you and I went when you were very young. But I remember the three of us going for lunch and uh, we're sitting in the room with this incredible pool. And uh, that, unfortunately, that restaurant doesn't exist. But Alexis was a an infant that had to be, you know, she was in a high chair. You were a, a young person. Um, and we, we both had a great time. So for me, you know, parenting was sharing. Parenting was introducing an experience or uh, an occasion or an idea. And then uh, fortunately, I had you guys you very early on as a captive to discuss what did we see? What did we think about it? What will we see next? So for us, this idea for me as a parent was this incredible opportunity to share and then to 
have this ongoing conversation about the things that are important to you and bring you joy. And, you know, I want to, for our listeners, I want to make sure people understand that there was also some formal education that was informing these wonderful trips, um, starting really, I mean, I know before high school, Dad, but can you talk about your your high school and college experiences and how Newark played a role, obviously, in your sort of future state as somebody who could appreciate art at the level that you do? Well, again, I, I've had this incredible a series of angels in my life that have um, provided not only wonderful parents and this, this sort of community village of uh, phenomenally um, wonderful people. Um, I had the opportunity to attend um, a high school that was a special high school. It was a magnet school. It was called Arts High. And it was the first visual and performing arts high school in the country. And kids from all over the city had to take tests to enter the school. You have to either take an art test or a music test. Now, all of the, it was around a college preparatory or college prep classes, but you could, um, you could major in either art or music. And you had to take a test to get into the school. And this, the test, primarily was academic. So fortunately, I had a very strong academic um, education um, leading up to getting to the high school. Uh, I, this, this, this literally saved my life. I, my local high school at the time was Barringer High School, which was a huge high school. And in the late 60s, it uh, had become pretty uh, challenging and a, a much rougher high school because the community was changing, times were changing. Um, and I, you know, I guess they would have had some art there, but um, I, I know that I wouldn't have had the experience that I was fortunate enough to have attending arts high school. So I got accepted. Uh, I was an art major. Um, Again, this idea of performing arts, visual and performing arts. We had theater. Our our teachers came from New York. The ones who taught theater, the teachers who taught music came from, some of them came from New York and dance. Um, our teachers, the art teachers were um, art teachers whose works were in museums. Um, the students who were attracted to the school, again, were from all over the city. And... Um, they were a great bunch of people to get to know, to, for me to find out, for them to know me and for me to know them. And so I got, and then at the top of my school, above the school, the high school, was the Newark School of Fine Industrial Arts. And it was like a two-year school for people who were going to go off into a particular art trade that had painting and you know, drawing and, and, and sculpting. And it was a two-year program. And I remember people saying to me, oh, are you going to apply to the New York School of Fine Industrial Arts upstairs to continue your education? And I said, no, I'm going to go to a four-year college. I, you know, that's sort of not, that's sort of an interim type of um, uh, decision. I really want the full college. And I had really, even though I'd gone to this art school, I really thought that I was going to go to, you know, a traditional uh, university um, I remember looking at the different catalogs and I said, wow, it might be cool to go to 
University of Chicago or, you know, locally, it might be cool to go to one of the art schools in um, New York, which were close by, which, you know, School of Visual Arts or Parsons. But my senior year, um, I again had the incredible um, um, for, good for, fortune to have a um, instructor in my commercial art class. He didn't call it graphic design or advertising. It was called commercial art. And his name was Julius Benevento. He had an accent. He wore a three-piece suit. He was very much like a uh, the kind of European guy, sophisticated guy you might see in the movies. And um, just really talented. And, and I said to Mr. Benevento, I said, Mr. Benevento, I'm thinking about going to art school. And he said to me, Roger, um, you're talented. I think you should go to the school that I went to. And I said, what school is that? And he said, this, the Cooper Union. And I'd never heard of the Cooper Union. And he said, and the, the best part about this, it's a great school. You're going to have to take a very difficult test to get in, along with having good grades. But if you get in, it'll be tuition free for four years. And, um, you know, coming from a very, uh, you know, um, working class family with not a lot of money, the idea of having an education for four years that was that I would you know be awarded was amazing. So um, I was told again the test is going to be difficult. Um, I, I applied to other schools, good schools. Cornell was one of them. Uh, School of Visual Arts, Pratt, and then locally Montclair was then called Mark Montclair State University. Montclair State later became a university. So I took the. Um, I remember telling my guidance counselor, Mrs. Bohannon, I said, Mrs. Bohannon, um, Mr. Benevento said to me that I should um, take the test for Cooper Union. And she looked at me and she smiled and she said, you know, Roger, um, that's interesting. He would suggest that, but I think that would be foolhardy. I mean, um, we haven't had anyone get into that school in 10 years. And the last person who got into that school was white. And, you know, this is the late, this was 69 going into 70. And fortunately, um, we as students had more agency at that time than maybe we might have had three or four years before. So this idea of being told that you sh should avoid doing something that you probably not succeed in was the last thing that I thought was appropriate, but it, it, it didn't matter. So five or six of us went over to Cooper to take the test. Uh, I was the only one that got accepted. And uh, Cooper Union then extended and introduced me to yet another world of art and architecture and design and the, some of the most brilliant people that I, I, that I could ever meet, I thought, at the time. So what did this, you know, and I... I'd gotten into Cornell and I was all ready to go. In fact, a lot of my good friends, a couple of my good friends, including uh, your mom, got accepted and I was all packed up, practically ready to go. But when I got the letter to um, go to that, I was accepted to Cooper Union. I, I was really very excited and, and happy. And so that experience gave me the ultimate uh, design fine art campus 
than anyone could ever have. The entire, the entire island of Manhattan. So um, I'm giving you some long-winded answers, but I'm thinking again, based on the many conversations we've had, what led up to, what were the experiences and the institutions that have informed my, um, my many careers in art, um, why attended Cooper Union, the most um, important person as far as a mentor was not any of my professors there, but um, a, a, a man called Vernon Grant, who was a graphic designer at CBS. And at that time, uh, CBS was one of the largest uh, broadcast radio stations. It had, it was the perceived by the design world to have the best designed um, everything there, publications, record jackets, TV commercials, et cetera. And this uh, person, Vernon Grant, had a design contest for black students to introduce us into the world of graphic design. I, I'd wanted to be a photographer and or a graphic design art director up until that time. And Vernon uh, sort of chuckled, said, Roger, you won the contest because you're a really good designer. And I wouldn't suggest you going into photography as a full-time career. It's very expensive. Um, black photographers are not sought after. It's a very challenging career. You need a lot of equipment. And so again, that sort of pivot from an idea to a reality. And I got to, over the course of two years, to design for CBS while I was at Cooper Union. And I got to be the, the second hand or the, the right hand to a very good and um, phenomenal designer, but who was also a fantastic fine artist. And um, because of him, I not only, you know, completed in my, my, uh, my time at Cooper Union, but I went on later to get my master's at Pratt Institute. And my master's at Pratt was a very different sort of journey because it wasn't on the campus in Brooklyn. It was the first time that there was a campus in um, Manhattan. And uh, so that's where I went for my, uh, for my uh, master's degree. So as you can see, and again, in my long-winded uh, answer, my journey in art, through art, through institutions, with the types of mentors and the important people in my life, they continue to be there. And um, that, again, is the, but Newark was the base. Newark was the my base of operations. I commuted from Newark, New Jersey for four years to Cooper Union. And um, and my early first marriage uh, moved one town over to East Orange. And, um, you know, so it's, I, I, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, and I think what, what I'm hearing from you as we've, you know, I, I want to pivot into some other topics, but before we leave this thread, I, I've noticed that um, role models, um, influences, environment, all of those things were really seminal and important to you in terms of shaping not only your appreciation, but also your, you know, your vocation. And I want to talk about, you know, the role modeling that you did as a parent, because not only did you take me to museums and kind of, you know, show me the life that you had created 
and how and why. Um, but you know, you talk about apples not falling far from the tree. I want to talk about an important moment in family history um, involving the Lincoln Tunnel and Alexis, uh, my little sister's birthday. We were driving to the Peking Duck House for her birthday because we we all love Chinese food in our family. And I think I was a sophomore at Princeton, and I announced that I was going to be an art history and visual arts major. Can you tell, we'll get to sort of the, the fast forward, but can you tell our listeners sort of what your initial reaction was having kind of tread that path yourself um, and, and what that meant for you as a parent hearing that? Well, it was a big surprise. And in retrospect, and we've shared this recently, it shouldn't have been a big surprise because, you know, from the time you could talk which is very early. <laughs> you know, we were going to museums. We were, uh, you know, going to the movies. We were going to parks. We were going bike riding. We were going to, you know, vacations in the vineyard, Martha's Vineyard. And, you know, I, we were doing these, uh, uh, we were doing a lot of filming with our uh, Super 8 setup, the camera and the huge recording pack. and. We were making, um, you know, videos and 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 sort of uh, trying to edit in the camera and sending out these Super 8 films. And then you, had, you know, we when I had the business in Manhattan on Park Avenue South, and you woke up early one morning and got on our Apple little black and white Apple computer and created. A, you, you wrote some music played the music and created a, 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 a skit with one of your pet, um, with one of your pet animals. So you went from, you know, traditional materials to multimedia, and you've always been involved in projects. You, you did architecture projects in the fourth and fifth grade. And, but when you told me this, I just, I, I didn't see you as, having had the life that I did. In fact, you probably had more of a experience to the arts and as, as a, a younger practicing artist. But, you know, parents aren't always as, um, as, um, as um, what is the word? Um, we, 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 we don't see as clearly as we think we always do. And I knew you were really brilliant. You were a great writer. Um, so I, I never imagined you wanting to pursue this as a career. I just said, oh, Ira, you know, she'll go into, um, you know, journalism. She'll go into maybe, you know, something in the arts, but on the, on the writing side or the producing side, the executive side. And um, so I was, I was truly taken aback. And it, and it probably, again, was my own sort of goofy parental prejudice as to, what your kids are going to be and how they're going to be. And um, so you stood your ground and uh, you did some phenomenal projects and installations at Princeton, which some people are still talking about, uh, fortunately. Um, so it, that, that was, a, that I'm sure for you, it was much more um, traumatized, traumatizing than you had ever expected or I had expected. But it, um, again, I think it just goes to show that 
you know, parents can be can go along a thread or a track with their children and not really understand how and where this is taking them, as opposed to just extracurricular. I saw my journey as not extracurricular, but as a journey that the only journey that I could take. Um, you know, I wasn't a, a, a good, uh, I didn't play sports well. Um, I thought I wrote, okay, I wanted to go in. I thought I wanted to be a doctor because people said, you're smart, Roger, you're probably going to law or to uh, medicine. And I didn't think I had the chops to do either one of those. And so for me, art was my path. And I guess I really believe that Again, for you, art was something you were always going to have, but it wasn't necessarily your path because you were so good. You were a great athlete, but of course you weren't going to be, uh, you wouldn't choose to be a professional athlete. You could have if you wanted to. You were a great tennis player. So I hope that answers your question about that, my response to your, uh, your um, you know, sharing with us your uh, major at Princeton. Yeah, you know, because I think for listeners today, there's so many choices, so much optionality. And particularly for me, I know at Princeton, when I was making art, you know, people were shocked. You know what? You had a dark room growing up. What? Your dad gave you a two and a quarter camera, medium format. What are you what are you talking about? And so I think that this idea of access, particularly for African-Americans, you know, art has always been seen not as recently. There's been such a conversation about Black contemporary art. But when I was growing up, it was, we were kind of an odd family, to be honest, right? Like people would come over and say, wait a minute, your dad's hanging art by, by people who have work in museums next to your work from eighth grade. Like what, what is this curatorial decision? And, and I guess maybe we can jump into collecting, right? Because I think the barrier, the only barrier to collecting is the idea of not having a an opinion about what you want to live with in terms of artwork, but maybe I'm oversimplifying. So maybe you can give the, the listeners a little bit more of a concrete understanding of, you know, you as a collector, the, the role that maybe race or socioeconomics has played or not played, and kind of what you see as the future of collecting for your collection, but also just for Black collectors in general. Well, Ara, this idea of collecting art, displaying art, Owning art, uh, seeking out art in exhibitions, again, was part of my, um, you know, orient not just orientation, but this was what people who go to art schools uh, would come to expect of themselves. And um, so I started collecting um, very early. Um, I remember trading a couple of pieces while I was in... Um, college with a couple of my friends. Um, you mentioned the idea of um, this, you know, displaying art or hanging art. And I, um, I really had to um, figure out what I was going to do. You know, I knew that collecting was not based on. Could you hold on, Eric? Just hold it right there. Okay. I'm going to continue. Hold on.
Okay. Um, you asked the question. I'm going to start the uh, the idea of collecting. Yep. Okay. So, um, displaying art. Interestingly enough, I had produced some what I thought were pretty neat um, uh, silkscreen prints while I was in high school. And my teacher at the time, uh, Julius Benevento, was teaching the course, said, Roger, I think these pieces are, I think they're fine enough to, um, to um, frame. And I said, uh, really? He said, sure. I said, so what do I do? Do I go to the department store and do I buy frames? And then do I, um, you know, put the work in there? He says, no, no, no. I have a framing business. And what I'll do is I'll, um, you know, I'll frame these for you. And I said, well, what will that, what will that cost? And he said, well, I'll give you an idea. I'll give you a break on it. Talk to your parents. I'll make these um, beautiful uh, walnut frame for your two prints. And they'll be, they'll, they'll last a lifetime. So I asked my parents, here I am in high school, and they fortunately said, okay, what did it cost? It may, may have cost $50 a piece, which was a lot of money at the time. And um, the work was framed, and uh, I showed it off. They showed it off. By the time I got to, I guess, as a young adult, I remember going back and asking them what ha happened to these beautiful prints. and. Um, they showed them to me and we had the prints were made on construction paper mm. and the construction paper obviously was not uh, archival right. and it wasn't meant to last. And the, the, the paper, the artwork disintegrated. So that, that was a signal to me that very early on that whatever you're going to get obviously had to be um, made or created in a, in a way that it could last at least a lifetime. So um, that was a very, um, that was an experience that was, wasn't something you learn in school. I guess I would have learned that in school, but I learned it um, firsthand. So uh, again, I, I was able to, in college, um, trade with a couple of my friends who were artists. We've traded works. I then started, you know, um, in the workplace and um, the people that I'd gone to school with, there were two people that I'd gone to school with specifically, um, Frank Stewart, a photographer, and Jeannie Matusame Ash, who um, both attended Cooper with me. And they started out with some very with some very significant uh, photography practices very early in their careers. And um, so while I was at Clairol, I was an art director at Clairol, I remember hunting uh, Frank down, of course, where he was in Manhattan, and going to his home and selecting two or three prints that I bought from him and um, then had framed. And these were among some of the, the uh, photographs that you grew up seeing. Um, as I moved into, you know, 
my career, um, the collect, collecting art became even more, um, more diverse and that I was looking at this idea of uh, different types of material, different types of conversations that the artist might be having that I might find uh, interesting to collect. And um, I, I say to people that my, my wanting to collect art is a way of, of uh, having a, collect, a conversation that an artist is having either with himself or with the world at large. And it's sort of, it's sort of frozen there. And you can put that conversation, whether it's a portrait or a landscape in a frame, or you can put it on a pedestal. And these conversations are portable. So unlike music, unlike dance, where you need some equipment to play them or to hear them, Art, you just, it's up on the wall, it's on the desk, it's its in your backyard if you want, if it's a sculpture. So for me, not only this idea of capturing what I think is a performance that the artist has created, and I think, again, art is not uh, labeled a performing art, but I think it is because the artist has to go into or is involved in this, this performance to create this art. So um, what I love about, and, or what I have set my sights on for, for my collection, and, and now I'm referring it to our collection, the Tucker uh, family collection, because you and your sister and, you know, grandchildren eventually, this will be the family's collection and you guys can figure out how to share it with the world. And um, so this, again, this idea of not only collecting, but for me, what's important and why I also collect is I, the artists that I collect are young enough, most of them, that I can sort of follow their careers. They may start out in one medium, they may start out in one sort of specific idea or technique, it evolves over a period, and then lo and behold, Sometimes they return to that um, technique or that idea or those materials. And I've been able to, in some of the work that's maybe no more than 10 years old, see this evolution of change and return by some of the artists that, I, that I've been collecting. So uh, does that answer your question about why I collect, how I collect? Yeah. And I've noticed, I mean, I'm, I'm very impressed by your sort of relentless pursuit of the emerging artist, right? Can you, can you tell us a little bit about how you go about finding these, these people who are making this work that you want to live with for a very long time? Like, are there different sources that you rely upon? Does price play a um, anything in it? Do you like getting to know the artist or do you not, are you neutral to that? Well, all of, all of those, uh, Knowing the artist is, or getting to know the artist, um, is important. So I, 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 most of the work that I bought, I bought in the artist studio. Um, so I know the artist, I get to choose. And it's interesting, you'll go to an artist studio and they'll have a wall of things that people are ooing and eyeing uh, over. And they're large and they're crazy or they're, you know, 
you know, compelling. And then over in the corner on the floor are maybe three pieces that I'm, that sort of resonate with me that I, that I'd say, you know what, that's another part of the conversation that I find more interesting. And can you tell me a little bit more about that piece or those pieces? Um, so visiting emerging artist studios, um, I've been, you know, fortunate enough to, again, being in the tri-state area, go to uh, uh, MFA program open studios where young artists are, you know, in their their graduate years, they're um, skilled, their um, uh, their ability to look at connecting things that they maybe couldn't have connected um, intellectually or or spiritually in, in college, they're able to do it in, in, in grad school. So a great percentage of the artists that I collect are uh, MFA academically trained artists. Um, I may have one or two pieces of artists by artists who are self, self-taught. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea of um, acad- academically trained artists, it's almost like you know, a doctor, you go to it, you can go to a doctor who's gone to a, you know, a small local school and has stayed in that town, you know, forever, or you can get a doctor who's got degrees from two or three global universities or has gotten a residency and, you know, a particularly um, a significant area. And you get to choose and you say, well, hmm, uh, which person is, you know, what what has informed either their um, expertise or their 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 skill or craft? So for me, the MFA artists, and they're still very young. They're, you know, early twenties, and um, they are most importantly very talented, um, v- fearless are looking to not follow the paths of even the the successful people who may have preceded them uh, five years before. I remember speaking to a young artist, um, Shafan Thomas at Yale. And I said, Shafan, you know, what's informing the work that you're doing here? And she says, well, people want to believe that it's because Shabalala self was here and I'm sort of channeling her work. I'm not channeling her work. I grew up in Chicago. My experiences are very different from hers. My interests are very different from hers. So I love to hear those conversations about their um, their work, um, what informs their work, um, what doesn't inform their work. And um, again, they're articulate as they need, as they should be, as anyone in a, in a, in a, any kind of practice should be about their practice. Um, so this, uh, idea of the artist, uh, it was, um, so that's one, uh, resource, um, uh, going to exhibitions, um, is another way that I've discovered. I discovered a young artist, um, at, um, the flag foundation, you and I and Hillary, um, in fact, Hillary, um, your wife and my daughter-in-law, uh, a very um, wonderful and, 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 and fearless artist, had some work in that exhibition. 
and I saw the work of um, a young artist whose first name was Princeton, and he had a very traditional way of doing portraits, but he was doing it on a different type of paper with different effects and traditional and not so traditional. And I later visited him um, at his studio at the New York Academy of Art and uh, got to see all of the work that he was working on, got to see where his work started, where it was going. We had conversations, but I selected a piece that was a collage that he had created fairly early uh, at his time at um, New York Academy of Art. And that was the piece I chose. Um, it doesn't look like the work that he's doing presently, but you can see that it's the basis of the work that he's doing presently. Figurative is very important. Uh, it's a portrait. It's um, using a variety of different media. So whether it's an open studio, whether it's an exhibition, whether it's Instagram, I keep discovering um, phenomenal artists. At least once a month, I'll just happen upon artists that someone, maybe someone that you um, have liked or Hillary or host of my other uh, host of other friends and colleagues. So uh, there's so much out, art out there. It's, it's amazing. It is very amazing. And I want to clarify for our listeners that you, if an artist is represented, you always go through their gallery. You're not buying on the side. It's when they're not represented that you're buying out of their studio. Absolutely. Um, so I have a few more questions and we'll wrap up, but my, my question is around, I know you tend to, rep, um, collect traditionally underrepresented artists, namely, um, African-American, you just mentioned figurative being important, but I know growing up that abstract art and other forms were really also compelling to you. Do you have a view of black art? Is there such a thing? <laughs> well, I, I believe that there is art. There's that there's only art. And uh, depending on the art that you pick up or the art that you see, they're done by a variety of different people. So, um, you know, most of the art that I saw growing up was um, artist, art by European artists, predominantly white male European artists. Um, they were pretty much overrepresented in the, in the canon of art. But I was also very fortunate again to know that there were also black artists um, that were, uh, that had practices that were heralded um, as a young teenager just entering, um, or possibly before I even entered arts high school, I saw the work of Richard Hunt. I, I saw this young man, black man, with a small afro, with a welding helmet on his head, with horn rim glasses like myself, and a plaid shirt on. And I said, wow, that guy looks like me. I'm one of the few guys in school that wears plaid shirts uh, and has glasses. But this guy's a sculptor. Where did I see him? I saw him in Ebony Magazine. My mom you know, made sure that we had a subscription to Ebony Magazine. And so every month I got to flip through those pages and see black engineers, black architects, black, you know, of course, entertainers, 
But to see this artist who didn't have a beret on, who didn't have a, a smock or a palette on it, you know, the, the sort of uh, stereotypic kind of, oh, this is an artist. Here was a guy with a welding helmet on. And here was his, he was in a huge um, space with sculpture and, you know, welding equipment. And fast forward era, um, I got to buy a print of Richard Hunt's, because that's all I could afford. I mean, his sculptures, he's the most, um, he has more uh, art and public spaces of any sculptor in the country. Very few people know that. But Richard Hunt, out of Chicago. But um, I was able to buy a print from an um, art dealer and gallerist, Bill Hodges, who had a gallery on um, 57th Street, one of the few Black gallerists. And you won't believe this, but uh, I know you will, but uh, uh, Bill Hodges grew up in Newark. So this idea of sort of, you know, breaking barriers, um, going places where people don't believe you can probably make a living or go to, I, I've, I've seen that time and time again not be the case, just the opposite. So anyway, I bought this Richard Hunt print and, um, you know, it's signed. I'm really excited about this. Uh, a year or two later, no more than that, Hillary and I and a good friend, another great artist, Willie Cole, we are at the opening of the new Whitney Museum in um, the Meatpacking District in New York. And who do I see? Richard Hunt. I went over to him and told him how he had influenced my idea or at least helped shape my idea that an artist could be, you know, a black guy, young black guy. Here he was, he was 80, I think 85 years old. We took a group shot together. So this idea of, you know, black art versus white art. I mean, if you saw Richard Hunt's work, you wouldn't say that's the work of a black sculptor. You'd say that's the work of a really incredible sculptor. Now, there are artists who, um, you know, black artists who uh, are focused on the, on the black figure as white artists focused on white figures. But what I'm also finding now in the, in the 21st century, are there a young white artists who are painting and creating images that you would associate only with a black artist? So I'm, I think that everyone is sort of, not everyone, some people are saying, you know what, that, that figure is not the, um, the uh, property of any particular kind of artist. I, I bought a piece from a young artist um, and I was struck by the figures. They were sort of plump black women, you know, full figured, um, you know, very Afrocentric. Uh, the text that she used was very sort of hip hop, hip hoppy. And when I met the young artist, she was anything but that, those, that work that she depicted. She was blonde. She was a very fair Latina. And I asked her, I said, you know, that, that work doesn't quite, I didn't really sort of uh, connect you and the art that you produce. And she said, well, that's how I see myself. So again, I've been very fortunate to 
understand and to know that what people sort of believe is a trend or the only way of going about uh, representing something or who has the permission to do the representing. We, we're all, there's no such thing as, um, I, I don't believe, as um, appropriation. I mean, we are all in this world, on this planet, uh, responding to experiences, challenges, and some of us, as should be, are reflecting our experiences, and others are doing just, just the opposite, or they're not doing just what is expected of them. So I hope that answers your question about the yeah. idea of who's doing what, why they're doing it, and who gets to do it. And I think that's a great sort of way for us to, to close up. If I've learned anything from this conversation, I've learned so many things. But what I'm taking away is that in some ways your, your legacy, while it is still being built, whether it's through the education, um, you know, being a trustee for Cooper Union or being an arts educator, um, you know, in a high school, your service um, back to Newark, you're the president of Glass Roots, which is um, an organization, a nonprofit in Newark dedicated to glass arts and promoting glass artists, but also just your patronage as a collector. I think that what you're, you're teaching through your actions are really that you can leave whatever mark or impression you want, and you shouldn't really be bounded by the boundaries in which you're placed, even if they're as wonderful as a city like Newark, you know, that that's just the jump off point and you can come back, you can bounce off. But if anything, I've learned that um, I finally get it. I get what Newark's got to do with it. And I've had a really great time chatting with you about it today. So thanks for letting me uh, guest host the podcast. Well, Ara, thank you for guest hosting. And I promise you it won't be the last time. Awesome. Look forward to hearing the next. All right. Love you. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks to Ara Tucker for her awesome interview of me, where I got to share how the cultural impact of Newark has shaped my life and work. Tune in next time for another conversation with our guest who will share their Newark, New Jersey cultural journey. If you'd like to share your Newark, New Jersey story, Go to our website and submit your unique journey on our contact page. I'm your host, Roger Tucker. I look forward to sharing these fascinating Newark, New Jersey conversations with you sometime soon. So long and be well.